0: Did anyone catch it? You know, we've heard this story over and over. And so we get this idea that we tend to think that Jesus only showed his scars when the disciples asked to see them. But that's not how the story went, if you listen closely. Jesus was all about his scars. He wanted people to see his scars. Listen to this. In verse 19 and 20, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. No one asked to see them. He wanted them to see his scars. And then a little later, in verses 26 and 27, it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Both times Jesus said, hey, it's me, look, my scars. look at them. Franz Pilson writes, Jesus leads with his scars. yet we've been trying not to touch them and to pretty up those holes ever since, both in Jesus and in ourselves. We all have scars. Many of us, Many of the physical kind, but far more of the emotional kind, right? Sometimes they're even related. And each one of our scars has a story. Christy Brown writes of scars. There truly is a story behind every scar. Some of the stories are painful. Some are funny. Some are significant, while others less so. Some are filled with shame, while others are full of pride. Yet without exception, every scar serves as a visible reminder of the wounds we have incurred. And I would add, invisible reminders too. For certainly our emotional wounds leave no fewer scars. I read of a man once who, when he was a young boy, his mother dropped him off outside an orphanage. He he didn't know it was an orphanage. She told him to sit under the tree and she'd be back in 30 minutes. She never came back. The man is now middle-aged. Every time a loved one is late to meet with him, he has almost a, a complete breakdown. He gets so worked up that they're late. That's a scar. That's a wound. I bet if we went around this room, many of us, all of us, have scar stories, both from our physical wounds and our emotional wounds. But isn't it interesting that even though we all have scars, and we all know we all have scars, we do our best to hide them. We don't want anyone to see the blemishes on our bodies. We don't want anyone to see the massive blemishes on our hearts and minds. I think sometimes we even try to hide scars from ourselves. Why? Why Why do we as Christians think we need to look so perfect? I get why our American culture does it. I understand. I understand why there are a 1,003 different creams out there to hide our skin blemishes. I get it. Our culture tells us perfect skin is beautiful. Look at the way they target teenagers and acne. I mean, what is more natural than teenagers getting pimples? But not in our culture. And I get why we have to hide our emotional scars in our culture. See, we, we, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. And if we're weak, we lose. We worship at the altar of Darwin, survival of the fittest. Never let them see you sweat. Never let them see us hurt and vulnerable. But that's our country's culture. How did that move into the church? We are supposed to be worshiping at the altar of a wounded, scarred, blemished God. So communion is all about His body broken and his blood shed. I think it's happened because we're so afraid of our own failures. Our own wounds, our own scars. We can't even look at some of them ourselves. And we certainly don't want to show them to anybody else. So instead we demand happiness, we demand flawlessness, and certainly we demand no scars in each other. We end up believing and even teaching that God doesn't want to see them either. And all the while we move further and further away from our wounded God that we claim to worship. the way from any sense of real community we might have had a chance to build. Too often Christianity gives a message the same as our culture does. We only care about the beautiful and strong, and if you are wounded and weak, we don't care. And when that message is loud, it causes people to not even want to share, and sadly to believe that no one will listen anyway. We have to give another message. Now I want to pause here for a quick second and talk briefly about community community is an essential part of Cana, and if we are going to continue to build community we have to recognize we, we cannot give out even by accident a message that you have to be perfect to be welcome. Brennan Manning warns us about what can destroy community. Brennan Manning writes, We must not romanticize such groups. It is all too easy to envision a cozy, harmonious little fellowship where everyone is tuned in on the same wavelength to love the dream of community more than the sin-scarred members who comprise it. I think that happens a lot, in, in especially in Christian churches, doesn't it? We fall in love with the idea more than the people that we're supposed to be loving. So Manning goes on, It's far too easy to fantasize heroic deeds for the Lord, to hear the applause in heaven and on earth as we shape an angelic quantumia. The reality is otherwise. Egos collide, personalities conflict, power brokers intrude, anger and resentment surface, risk is inevitable. Sounds like family, actually. But then Brendan Manning has a wonderful description of what Christian communities can be should we He says, small enough for intimacy, kindred enough for acceptance, and gentle enough for criticism. Gathered in the name of Jesus, the community empowers us to incarnate in our lives what we believe in our hearts and proclaim with our lips. Community is a necessity for every Christian, a place where people are praying and worshiping together, healing, forgiving, reconciling, supporting, challenging, and encouraging. In a word, loving one another. Love This is my prayer, and it's been my prayer for Cana since we started, that we never close our eyes to the reality of what we really are. Because when we do that, that's when we start to get hurt, and bitter, and resentful, and end up traveling on down the road. What we are, and what every church is, or should be, is and should recognize it is a bunch of messy wounded scarred scared sinners who God loves just the way we are and who are trying and failing and trying again to love him and love each other that's what we are and if we can keep that honesty within our vision we We can keep this community growing deeper and healthier, even in the midst of so much transition and change that we're going through right now. So we have to be sure we're giving another message to the world, not a message that you have to be perfect to be part of the church. And I think we give that message by seeing the wounded healer that we follow and understanding his scars. He led with them when He first appeared to His disciples. And He is forever leading with him as He comes to us. This table that we just celebrated, communion together, is the singular, most important part of the Christian experience. And it's all about a wounded God. We don't worship Him at Apollo's Hall. We worship at Jesus Christ. And the first thing we have to see is what Kyle Childers saw. He said, the Christian faith does not deny the pain, the reality of the wound, the existence of the scars. Scars are not ugly. Charles Spurgeon called them the glory of God, for by his wounds we are healed. He took that directly out of Scripture. St. Peter wrote in 1 Peter Peter 2.24, He Himself, Jesus Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been And the great prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 of, of his book, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we This is why the risen Christ is still scarred. Think about that. The risen Christ is still scarred because the pain and suffering of Friday is not shame, and it's never to be forgotten. And he became sinning, by the way, much more than any kind of sinning we could ever do. Yet he bears those scars, probably. It's the essence of God's love, his scars. And for all eternity, lest we forget, lest the angels forget, we will be reminded of what love is every time we see the sky. <coughs> and for here and now, they are just as important. That's one of the reasons at Canaan we celebrate every week communion, to be reminded of our wounded. His scars remind us that our own wounds, our own pains, our own suffering is understood by another. Brown again, she writes, These scars serve as a reminder that God is with us through all things, especially the appalling, destructive, and death-dealing times. The image of the risen Christ with wounds in His hands and His side reminds us when we suffer that so did our God. When we cry out in loneliness, so did our God. When we feel abandoned and alone, we remember that Christ hung on our cross and yelled on our behalf too, My God, my God, why? We don't have a God who stands at a distance, but rather one who entered fully into the reality of our pain. So when we suffer, we know that Christ can say, I've been there and I have the wounds to prove. And we all know, sometimes the only true comfort to be found in this world is from the empathy of one who knows. When you're talking about a certain pain you're experiencing, and the person you're talking to has never experienced it, you know they can't empathize with you, you know they can't give comfort. It's like talking to Sarah about giving birth to an 11 and a half pound baby, I have no idea what she went through. (laughs) So I can't help with that at all. (laughs) Empathy is important. In fact, for me, one of the biggest reasons Jesus Christ is my God is because when that day comes that death visits me, I'll be able to cry out to a God who will also experience death. I I can't think of anything more comforting than going through death with someone who has already gone through death. We all have that hope. He's been there before. He'll go through it with them. And you know, maybe in some ways, that is what our own wounds are about. We spend all our time trying not to be hurt, but, but maybe our wounds are not to regret. Our wounds are not to wish away, not to hide. You know, and maybe they're not even to come to terms with or to understand. Maybe our wounds... Just to use to love others better. Maybe that's it. Oh, you gotta, sorry, Ian, yeah, you gotta go around. Sorry, Jerry, you gotta go around there using that room. Maybe that's what our wounds are for, to love others better. To see honestly all of our own failures, our own sufferings. Our own wounds caused by the choices of others, but let's be honest, sometimes by our own choices. And then to be able to look on the same in others and not judge. Not fear. But simply reach out and love and understand what they are going through. Maybe our own wounds to look on our own scars and know we are (coughs) profoundly loved by God, not despite them, but maybe even because of them. I shared this passage from this book called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. Richard Selzer was a doctor. He wrote this, and and I shared it before at church, but I want to share it again because it's really really powerful, and maybe we've forgotten it, or maybe some haven't heard it before. So he writes, he's a surgeon, he's a surgeon, and he writes this about one of his surgeries. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish looking, a tiny twig on the facial nerve. The one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will look like this from now on. To remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this ugly, wry mouth I have made who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily, the young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks me. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods in is silence, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says, it is kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not so bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Such beautiful, beautiful passage. So friends of Pilsen commenting on this passage, wrote, it seems unavoidable, crooked kisses and all. Whatever our memory scars might be, we all have them. So it seems to me that we must lead with those wounds, clearly and without shame when we can, and less so, that is all that we can muster. In order to do that, we must give and receive all the crooked kisses that we can. We all have scars. The good news is, so does God. Let's remember what Christy Brown said. Christ's scars become part of our story, and our scars become part of God's story in our lives. The scars of Christ become scars of hope as we deal with our own.